0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Valerie Jarrett is the longest-running senior advisor to a US president in history. She served alongside President Obama during his eight years as commander-in-chief. Her rise to success, though, didn't come until after she fully understood her family history. Her ancestors were African-American trailblazers who broke the status quo.
1: You know, we are our stories. I mean, we are all our stories and whether it's different or not, it's part of what makes you who you are and I had to really be a grown adult before I learned to appreciate and own my
0: story. Today, she talks about working in the Obama White House, how the presidency has changed under Trump, and why more Americans need to vote. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Valerie Jarrett remembers the day she met Michelle Obama. She was applying for a job with the city of Chicago, and Jarrett was interviewing her.
1: She walked in. She was tall. She was elegant, but simply dressed, no makeup, hair pulled back. She looks me right in the face, shakes my hand, sits down with confidence. She sees her resume on my desk. She never mentioned a word. She figured I could read. And instead, she tells me her story.
0: That day, a deep friendship began, not just with Michelle, but also her fiancé at the time, Barack Obama. Prior to that, Jarrett had struggled with a failed marriage, single motherhood, and finding purpose in work. She chronicled her life story in her book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. In a personable and funny conversation with Jonathan Capehart of the Washington Post, she explains how life rarely delivers what you expect. Here's Capehart.
2: So I just want to dive in because the a major message of your book comes in on page 11. For those of you who have the book, please turn to page 11. <laughs> um, and you write on that page that your father, quote, had experienced success based on merit and hard work. Just as my mother had years earlier by the time she graduated from college, and thanks to both of them, I grew up believing that was po- believing that was possible. It's much easier to be what you see. My parents were role models, and they gave me the early impression that my potential in life was limited only by my willingness to work hard and be resilient, combined with a good bit of luck. My mom and dad had taken me across the color line and around the world, showing me what was possible so that I could dare to imagine any kind of life I wanted and so there's no better way to start this conversation than talking about your parents Jim Bowman and Barbara Taylor and also the fact that you were born in Iran so why on earth were you born in Iran and what took Jim Bowman and Barbara Taylor to Iran in the first place?
1: I get that a lot. Like, what on earth were you doing there? So that's where my mother was, where she gave, she gave birth, so that's why I was <laughs> born there. Uh, my parents... Well, let's see. So Barbara and Jim Bowman. My mother grew up in Chicago, and my father grew up in Washington, D.C., and they met and fell in love and got married right after my mother finished college, and my father was doing his residency in Chicago. And after they got married, my father... Uh, got signed up for the military and he was in the army. And when he was leaving the army, a couple years later, he was looking for a job at a major teaching hospital in the United States. He wanted to do research. He was a patholo- pathologist by training. And he could not find a job at a major teaching hospital uh, in a position that would be comparable to his white counterparts. And so he and my mom, who I will tell you are adventuresome spirits to say the least, decided, well, let's look for opportunities outside of the United States. And so after much due diligence and searching, he landed a job offer chairing the Department of Pathology and helping to start a brand new hospital in Shiraz, Iran. And so off they went. They knew nothing about the government, the language, the culture. They'd never been any further than Europe by that point in time. Their family said, don't go. What are you thinking about? Now, obviously, the United States and Iran had very strong diplomatic relations at the time, thank goodness, Um, and so off they went. And so he went from being considered a black doctor with a brick on his head, to an American physician, judged by the merit of his accomplishments. And he thrived in Shiraz, and I was the second baby born in the Namazi Hospital. They practiced on some other baby first. (laughs) We're still not quite sure what happened there, but I came along as number two. And we lived there until I was five. And from there, my father, uh, well, while in Iran, he started doing research on fava beans. We're not gonna talk about the fava bean research, but look it up if you want to. It was groundbreaking research, and it caught the attention of folks at the Galton Labs at University College of London. And so after five years, my parents decided it was time to start migrating their way back home, so they went to London for a year. And don't you know he gave some paper at an international conference while he was at the Galton Labs, and it caught the attention of the Dean of the University of Chicago Medical Center. I know, and he got offered a tenure-track position in my mother's hometown in the community where my grandmother and my aunt and a huge extended family had settled when the restrictive covenants were deemed unconstitutional and people, black people in Chicago were free to move anywhere. They all moved into Hyde Park. And so there we went. And it's, uh, it's interesting, because when I, I was growing up, my dad always said to me, sometimes the shortest distance to where you wanna go means you have to be prepared to take the long way around. Well, they certainly took the long way around, but he spent the rest of his career right where he always wanted to be, at the University of Chicago. And he was the first African American to receive tenure at the University of Chicago's Division of Biological Sciences. Thank you very much.
2: So I can't remember um, if it's before they went to Iran. I think it's after, after they came back and he went to work and they told him not to come in oh, the front no, door. no, no. When was before. that? This is before. So when my
1: father went to Chicago, he was the first African-American, a lot of that. He was a trailblazer, to uh, do his residency at St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago. And that's where he and my mom actually fell in love and decided to get married. And uh, they told him he could not live in the dorm for the other residents, which was on the property because he's black and he's the only black one there and they said, Well you can't live with the other residents. So he had to commute to work, uh, five miles back then in the black community by streetcar. Not an easy thing to do. While everybody else is getting a good night's sleep. He spent an hour each way on the on the streetcar. And then they also said you have to come in the back door. And he's like, you know what? I am not going in the back door. That is a bridge too far for me. And so the first day of work he went in the front door and no one said anything. I mean, no, and that's kind of how Chicago was. They had these rules, but if you didn't abide by them, maybe something happened, maybe it didn't. And so the next day when he showed up at work, all of the black folks that worked in the hospital, so the orderlies and the nurses and the administrators were all gathered in the front of the hospital. And as his story goes, everybody walked in the front door, and that was the end of that rule.
2: And so that is, that is a, you use the, the, the perfect word here, and that's trailblazer. Um, my favorite chapter in the book is entitled um, Inheritance, or The Inheritance. And you know her father isn't the only trailblazer in the family. I'm just going to r- read this, and you correct me where I, where I get it wrong. Your great-grandfather, Robert Robinson Taylor, became the first black student to attend MIT.
1: 1888.
2: And his, father, he, and his father was a slave.
1: His father was born a slave born a in slave. Wilmington, North Carolina, was freed during after the Civil War, and started to work as a carpenter and decided that the path forward was education for his son. And so he saved enough money. And who knows why he thought of MIT, but that's what he thought of. And my great-grandfather was accepted, and then he went to MIT. And I used to always imagine, what was that train ride from Wilmington to MIT like for my great-grandfather, and what was his father thinking seeing his child go off north where I'm sure he had never been before? Mm-hmm. So he was a trailblazer.
2: Um, we'll keep on, Robert, uh, Robert Robinson Taylor. He then went on to become America's first accredited black architect. He was hired by Booker T. Washington to build buildings at Tuskegee Institute. What? Right, what? that's what I, when what I was like, what? Is that what you right? said? <laughs> right? I know. But wait, there's more. Your great-great-grandfather, Victor Rochon, was one of the first black legislators voted into the Louisiana House of Representatives during Reconstruction. But wait, (laughs) there's more. Your grandfather, Robert Rochon Taylor, graduated from the University of Illinois with a degree in business, and he is the person for whom the Robert Taylor houses were named for. Right.
1: Yeah, not our proudest moment as a family, I which you write
2: about in the in the book, um, and I think it was either you or your mother. It, like it pained either of you to drive by. Oh my
1: God! Well, so my grandfather, just for a second, was a businessman, and he was successful in banking and insurance, and he was asked to chair the Chicago Housing Authority that oversees all the public housing in Chicago, and he had a vision for public housing. Uh, that involved making sure that it architecturally blended into the community so that it didn't stick out, it was indistinguishable. He thought they should offer social services and job training and opportunities so that it would be a temporary way station and people could move on from there. Uh, He believed that there should be strict rules of behavior and conduct and screening. So he was kind of a person way before his time. And finally, he resigned from the housing authority in frustration because he couldn't get the Chicago City Council, no surprise, to allow him to build housing in areas that were um, white under the restrictive covenants. All the black people lived in one place and all the white people lived somewhere else. And so he resigned. And he also believed that housing should be low density and that you should have a front yard and a backyard and a sense of ownership and feel responsibility. And that doesn't come with big high-rise monstrosities. And so there was a certain irony six years after his death when Mayor Daley, Mayor Richard J. Daley, dedicated the largest public housing development 16 high-rise buildings right along the Dan Ryan Expressway in Chicago, and he named them after my grandfather. And so I attended the opening, and it was all these mixed emotions. There were people who were moving out of horrible tenements into these brand-new buildings, and for those families, this seemed like a step up and a, and a sense of progress, but I overheard my grandmother and my mother and my aunt talking, and the conversation was refreshed. Every time on the nightly news, you'd see Robert Taylor Holmes always associated with something terrible, and they said that it was the exact opposite of his vision mm-hmm. for public housing.
2: And that's your, your father... Um, Robert Taylor is successful in real estate and banking, became the first black chairman of the Chicago Housing Authority uh, in 1941. And I'm sorry, that's your that's her grandfather. grandfather, your grandfather, who is your your mother's father, Barbara Taylor. She went to Sarah Lawrence. Um, she's an educator. Um, she met um, and married your father on June 17th, 1950, which is 69 years ago last week. Talk, talk about your, your mother, Bar- Barbara Taylor, now Barbara Bowman.
1: Well, first of all, she's 90, which is hugely important, right? She made it to 90. She still works full time. I know. She goes to work every day. She drives herself. That's another story.
2: <laughs> I'm
1: trying to get her to ride a Lyft. I'm on the board of Lyft. I'm like, Mom, you could ride a lift and you could go and come anytime you want to. She's like, I like to drive myself. Uh, But that says a a lot about Barbara Bowman. She's also quite frugal. So for example, when I uh, went to college, she calculated what every class cost. I mean like every day, every class. And she gave it to me on a piece of paper and said, if you are ever tempted to cut class, this is what it's gonna cost your father and me. Um, But my parents loved me unconditionally provided me with an enormous safety net to take all kinds of chances, just as they had, uh, knowing that they would catch me. And they set very high expectations in terms of effort, as Jonathan mentioned early on. They didn't care what I ended up doing. They just wanted me to work hard and be determined and resilient and give it my best, and that that was no guarantee. And my parents said, look, you have to work twice as hard. They never finished that sentence, but I knew what they meant. Uh, But if luck breaks your way, then maybe the sky is the limit. And don't let hard work prevent you from trying uh, for your goal. And so that was kind of the spirit of how they raised me. And, and my mom and my dad are polar opposites in only one way, in that my dad sees the glasses like 99% full, always. And my mother, no matter how good things are, she is planning for the disaster. And in fact, the worst fight they ever had was over how they were gonna spend the lottery proceeds from a lottery that they had not yet nor did ever win. (laughs) My dad had all these expansive plans, and my mom was, like, paying the taxes on it and setting up trust accounts, and I think maybe $5 (laughs) was left over. And they literally had an argument. They stomped upstairs fussing about this lottery proceeds, and I was, like, shaking my head. was... Very embarrassing. My boyfriend was home from law school staying at our home, and he's like, do they fight like this all the time? I said, I've actually never seen anything quite like it, but I know one thing. They will not go to bed angry. And, in fact, they did figure out how to make up, and they never never won that lottery. Mm -hmm. But they had very, very different approaches to the world. And I think I tilt towards my father and my optimism, but my mom always said, too, like, if things don't go your way, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And there was that sense of even within her, with her practicality, that you just have to figure out another way. If one way doesn't work, just like they went off to Iran, well then you swerve and figure out your own path.
2: Well, you talk about the the safety net of family and community uh, there in Chicago, but that didn't mean you were immune to hardship. And by hardship, I'm thinking about early on when you've come back to Chicago from Iran and from London, and now here you are, I think you say in the book, this fair-skinned, freckle-faced, redhead kid with the British accent. And it did not
1: go over well in Shoesmith Elementary School, let me tell you.
2: And, and, and I think you open one chapter with a taunt from one of the kids, hey, Red, hey, Red. Yep, and I knew it was ha- gonna happen because it happened all the time. She grabbed
1: me from behind, knocked me down, and fortunately, I had a younger cousin, she was six months younger, and about 10 pounds lighter, and she would continuously come to my rescue, which was A, embarrassing, but B, very helpful, because she had two older <laughs> siblings, so she could fight. And I I had not learned how to fight, but I got bullied for, well, the way I look, the fact that I came from, I was born in a country no one had ever heard of. The British accent, well, I lost that by the first week. I was like, that's not going over very well here. And I just wanted to be like everybody else. And I think there are a lot of kids out there that feel different, and I have a sensitivity to that because I felt that way. Even though I had these loving parents and a grandmother who was my rock, Puddin I called her, this extended family, but I still didn't feel like I quite fit in. And even though they loved me tightly, when I went to school, it was tough there for a minute. And then I figured it out, and unfortunately, I stopped, well, I told you about the British accent, but I also stopped speaking Farsi, and whenever my mother would speak in public, and she knew, she was so proud that she was fluent in this language in a country she'd only lived in for six years, and so when she wanted to say something to me, and you parents out there, you know the thing, you didn't want anybody else to understand, she would speak to me in Farsi, and it usually was, sit down, be quiet, come here, behave, but I would shudder when she would speak in Farsi, and it took me decades to appreciate that, you know, we are our stories. I mean, we are all our stories. And whether it's different or not, it's part of what makes you who you are. And I had to really be a grown adult before I learned to appreciate and own my story.
2: So. Can you still speak a little Farsi?
1: Barely, but uh, what I can do is I understand it better. And so, if you're on an airplane and you start speaking Farsi, don't assume (laughs) I don't understand what you're saying. That has happened a couple of times. Uh Uh-huh.
2: And what about French? Because you
1: French, I still speak moderately well.
2: So the teasing—I brought up the teasing because that factors into a big part of your personality, at least back then. And that was shyness.
1: Oh, I was painfully shy. You were very,
2: very shy. Yeah. And that worked its way, although you write that it wasn't until, well until in your adult years that you were able to get over the shyness.
1: Yeah, I think some people, I don't know, some of you might be shy. Uh, Temperamentally, I just was, and I've I've tried to analyze it. Maybe it's because we moved around so much when I was a kid, and I kind of played in my own little fantasy world, and I was insecure because each time I got plopped down somewhere, I had to adjust to it. For whatever reason, I was painfully shy, and now, as you can tell, I simply cannot stop talking. (laughs) But it took a long time, and I, I mean, look, I remember the first time I spoke in public, I was... In my early 30s, I was—I uh, had been appointed to run the Department of Planning and Development in the city of Chicago. Nobody told me public speaking was a part of that job when I signed on for it. I mean, I, in law school, and when I got called on, I would cringe, like the first day I got called on twice, I didn't think there'd be a second day. I mean, I really shied away from public speaking. And when I had to give my first speech, I wrote on a note card in ink every, you know, the seven different points I wanted to make in this speech. And then I got nervous before the speech and I started to perspire. And I was holding the note card in my hand and all of the ink, I know, I know, it was a disaster. And I didn't notice it until right before I spoke and I opened my hand and it's blue and I cannot read anything on the paper and I'm trying to figure out what to do with the blue hand while I'm speaking. And look, I got through it, it wasn't pretty but I got through it. And I think that's kind of the point, is, is that I just had to keep trying. And I kept having to do more and more speaking. And every time, like the first time I did something on television, I could tell you exactly what that experience was like. It was also not great. Um, but you repeat it over and over again. And I think part of the challenge is being honest with yourself about what you're not good at and then mm-hmm. deciding what you want to work on. And then just keep practicing it over and over again. And eventually, you start to enjoy it. But it took decades.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, another reason why I brought up the, the, the bullying and, and the teasing is also because you write um, very forthrightly in your book about the color line and color issues and being, uh, being light-skinned and being from a family that's, that's fair-skinned. And you write uh, two instances I found fascinating. One, that on a drive down south, um, You know this whole movie, you know Green Book about people African Americans knowing where they could stay on those trips, but your family would do something different.
1: Well, so my as I mentioned or you mentioned Jonathan, my uh, great grandfather stayed at Tuskegee for most of his career, and when he wasn't there, he retired and he went back to Wilmington, and so in the summers my mom and her sister and my grandparents would drive to either Tuskegee or Wilmington. And as you all now know from the, from the movie, if for nothing else, there were a lot of places around the South where African-Americans could only stay in African-American colored only hotels. And there were also patches where there were no hotels. And so usually my grandparents would try to find people that they knew and stay with them in the areas where there were no hotels. But they hit a patch where they didn't know anybody and there wasn't a hotel for colored people. And so my grandmother, who is fairer than I am with dead straight hair, went and checked into the motel while my mother and her sister and my grandfather kind of hid out in the car. And when the clerk wasn't looking, they scurried into the motel. And so there was a certain privilege that went along with that complexion that my grandmother had, but then there was also blowback that went along with it too. And I know I tell a story about my grandmother taking me to Marshall Fields in Chicago. I don't know if any of you are from Chicago, but there was a Walnut Room, Chicago in the house. There was a restaurant called The Walnut Room. And when I was very young, around the Christmas holidays, we'd dress up and my grandmother and I would go down there. And I realized in years later that like people thought we were white. Only people that probably figured it out were the guys, the servers in the restaurant who were black that was a privilege and i now i look back and i was like well why would she take me to a restaurant where we knew black people weren't welcome and i think she just wanted me to have a nice experience Mm. but again that was a privilege one that i'm sure other people resented and i asked my mother as an adult well how did other people feel and she said they probably wish they could go to that nice restaurant too but recognize that that was a privilege that you had and there's a cost that goes There's a, both a benefit and a cost that goes along with it. And I think, frankly, in the black community, we still haven't reckoned, mm-hmm. reconciled with the challenges that we give each other, let alone what the rest of the world does to us because of hair texture and skin color.
2: Well, hair texture, you also write in the book that of all the cousins, you're the one who didn't get the long, flowing, no, luxurious hair. No, I didn't. Hair. OK. Um, <laughs>
1: I didn't, and I wanted to have hair just like all of them. And so there is that, too.
2: (laughs) For the folks in the audience who know Valerie or have worked with Valerie, you will understand the look she just gave me. (laughs) It's true. For those of you who read Becoming or listened to Becoming, you know that uh, Mrs. Obama had a plan. Like She had her checklist of things, and this is the way her life was going to work. And what's fascinating is when you read Valerie's book, to see how similar these two women are from completely two different stories in Chicago, but really very similar ways of going about things. And you had a 10-year plan. Um, One was graduate Stanford. Two, graduate from Michigan. Three, discover my career passion. Four, fall in love and marry. Five, have a baby. Six, be a fulfilled, satisfied, and happy wife and working mom. Of the six... Oh, good Lord. One of them didn't pan out. And you write about it in such a way that is, to my mind, reminiscent of Catherine Graham's autobiography and the way she wrote about her relationship, about her mother, the way she wrote about the suicide of her husband. Very raw and very real. And that was your writing about Bobby Jarrett. Your husband... Laura's dad how did you meet him and what went wrong
1: how much time you got
2: we got you you got two minutes
1: I knew Bobby for as long as we lived in Chicago so maybe you're right you had a crush
2: on him since you were eight
1: I developed a crush on him at about age eight when he (laughs) was 12. Um, My mother and his mother well he was the boy next door figuratively but really almost literally my mother and his mother grew up in the same apartment building that my grandfather managed Um, Our fathers were friends. Our grandmothers were friends. Uh, He was a doctor. My father was a doctor. I used to go to church with my grandmother because he was an altar boy. And I used to always say, I'll go to church. And it was really just to see Bobby Jarrett. And, of course, because I'm 8 and he's 12, he paid no attention to me. Totally unrequited love all the way up until 25. And at 25, I know it took a long time to get him to turn around and look at me. But finally, (laughs) at 25, we were at my cousin Kyla's wedding and we were, I was standing outside with all my cousins laughing about the fact that her uh, her maid of honor had dropped the ring inside the church and it would, like went all down the aisle. we had to rehash that a hundred times. And up walks Bobby Jarrett with my godfather, who was in his 90s by that point. And I saw him coming, I was like, he's coming my way, and lo and behold, He, like, looked at me for the first time. And I thought, I'm going to marry you, because I've been trying to get you to look at me since I was eight. (laughs) And I gave about as much thought to it as that. And I did marry him. And as I said, plenty went wrong. And I think I thought I could just will him to be the fantasy that I wanted him to be. and My parents were so happy, and I thought, okay, he looks great on paper, and I'm thinking about the biological clock, so i got to get going at 26, the child that I was. And so I did marry him. And I tried really hard to make him into my father. And you know what, he just was not my dad. And I should have known that I should have done a little more due diligence before I got into it. But I thought I was it was important to be open about it. Because when it when it didn't work, and when I finally just thought this isn't going to work, and I can't make it work, I felt like a failure. And I don't want People to feel that way about marriages that don't work. Like, you'd give it your best, and if it doesn't work, then that's okay, and you learn from it. And in a sense, I had been looking for Bobby to complete me, and um, I, I wanted to be married so I would never be lonely. Well, let me tell you something there is nothing lonelier than an unhappy marriage. So, for all of you who are out there thinking, if I can just get married, I'll be happy. Well, Do your homework first. Don't marry the wrong person. And if you do, get over it and move on. And I think I say, I know, I say in the book, I can say this now, because it's been 30 years. I didn't say this at the time, but now with the benefit of lots of hindsight, I realize my failed marriage was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, I tried, I thought, well, having a child would make it better. Another piece of advice, it does not. It makes it a lot more stressful. But having my daughter was by far the best thing that has ever happened to me in my life. And having her and looking at this child made me really question everything. And I thought, I'm going to a job that I feel very unfulfilling. I was at a really fancy, big corporate law firm in Chicago. And I begin my book talking about looking out the window at this magnificent view of the Sears Tower and... I would sit in that office and cry, and I thought, I don't like my husband, I don't like my job, I do like my daughter, but I'm leaving her every day, and I thought, well, what am I going to do about this? And it was the first time, Jonathan, that I actually remember listening to the most important voice, and that's the one inside, and I thought, I got to get out of this marriage, and I got to get out of this job, and I had a really dear friend who had worked for Mayor Harold Washington and had left his law firm to go work for the mayor in the law department. And he said these words I'll never forget. He said, why don't you consider public service? You'll feel a part of something bigger and more important than yourself. And that resonated with me. And so I took this leap of faith and I joined the law department of the city and just one more bit on Barbara Bowman for reasons I don't remember. She drove me to work my first day at City Hall And maybe the reason she offered was to say this. As we pulled up in front, she said, I can't believe I paid all that tuition for you to come and work here. What are you doing with your life? And I was like, thanks, Mom. And I walked into City Hall. It took about two decades before she said to me, maybe two and a half decades before she said, okay, maybe you were right. It worked out okay for you. That seems you. to
2: correspond with the Obama years. Yes, but, it does. Um, for, when you get the book, for those of you who don't have it, on page 49 is a very... Sort of back to Bobby Joe, very wrenching scene that Valerie writes about, very openly and honestly. I'm not, am not going to read it. Don't give it away. Well, I'm not going to read it, but page forty nine. And then, in terms of, in terms of your daughter, in terms of Laura, you write, "My daughter once said to me that my marriage was the best mistake I ever made. I know what she meant, but I would put it differently. In my wrong-headed last-ditch attempt to save my marriage, the very best decision I ever made was having my daughter." When you read this book, the love uh, for Laura leaps off the page. Um, She's about to make you a grandmother in about a month, less than a month.
1: Less than a month. Oh, my gosh. So excited.
2: (laughs) I I was expecting you to go on more. I was
1: going to say on that note, my mother recently said to me, you know what? Really, the only reason to have kids is to have grandchildren. I'm like, Mom, I'm right here. I'm, I'm your kid, and what are you saying? She said, trust me, you'll understand
2: <laughs> And now you understand. And now
1: I'm getting ready to understand.
2: All right, I want to uh, um, fast forward through, through some things. You went to work for the city. You went to work for, for Mayor Washington. He passes away in office. You decide to stay and work with Mayor Daley. It was there during Mayor Daley's uh, administration that a young woman comes walking into your office, by the name of Michelle Robinson. And I think it's, the, it, you call it the best decision you, well, the aside from hire. Laura. The, best, the, best, hire. Hire the, be- the best hire. The best hire I ever made, The best hire you ever made. So she comes into the office, and you also write that you had no authority whatsoever to offer her a job, and yet you did. Have you met Michelle Obama? Who wouldn't offer
1: her a job instantly? <laughs> yes, I did. And look, she walked in. She was tall, she was elegant, but simply dressed, no makeup hair pulled back, she looks me right in the face, shakes my hand, sits down with confidence. She sees her resume on my desk. She never mentioned a word. She figured I could read. And in te- instead, she tells me her story. And she opens up, and well, you all now know it. It's the quintessential American story. Growing up on the south side of Chicago, working-class family, parents who valued education and excellence and instilled in both Michelle and her brother Craig this sense of, those who much is given much is expected and they were a humble family but they gave them love and support and also as my parents didn't tell them you have to go do this but whatever you do do it really really well and work hard at it and interestingly i left city government i think because of having my daughter or left the law firm because of having my daughter michelle was searching for something from her big corporate law firm because the year before I met her, she lost both her but lost both her father and her best friend. And so we were both motivated by the sense of, life is short and you have to make it impactful. And I wanted to make my daughter proud of me, and I didn't think she would be proud if I stayed in the firm. And Michelle wanted to do something that was meaningful because of these terrible losses that she'd had so early in her life. And we talked about that when we first met, and I think, What's so important is sometimes you go in for a job interview and you're so busy selling yourself that you forget that there is more to you than just what's on your resume. And that she just struck me as a whole person. And also like 20 minutes into the interview was supposed to be just 20 minutes long. Hour and 10 minutes, it lasted. She totally turned the tables on me and started asking me really, really hard questions about the job. And I had just been promoted. I had no answers for her. I didn't know. It's like, we'll figure it out. And she didn't think that, was, that wasn't quite good enough. And so really, to stop the conversation, I gave her the job offer. And I thought, <laughs> well, let's just end all these questions I can't answer. And wisely, she demurred and said, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. And so we're chatting a few days later, and I said, well, what do you think? And she said, we have a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? And she said, well, my fiancé doesn't think it's a really good idea.
2: Can I read this line?
1: Yeah, you can read the line. So,
2: (laughs) thinking she and I had really clicked, I wasn't expecting that wild card. All the other applicants were clamoring for a job in the mayor's office, and you you write that you said to her, Who the hell is your fiance and why do we care what he thinks? I'm
1: not proud, but I did say it (laughs) and I did wonder it too. And so she said, she laughed at me and she said, Look, he started his career as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago. He has some reservations about me going from a law firm right to a political mayor's office. You practiced law for four years for the city before you went to the mayor's office. And he kind of thought maybe we should all get together and talk it out. And I wisely said, okay. <laughs> what do I, I wanted her, I would have, of course I would go have dinner with her to try to convince her to do this. And at the dinner, what struck me most about them is not only were they obviously in love, they're about to get married, but the mutual respect that they have for each other. And for all the people who have since then, when they hear this story said, well, why did she need to have her fiance at the table? I say there wasn't a single decision in his entire career where Michelle Obama wasn't sitting right there for the decisions as well. And if she had said, no, don't run for the Senate, although we did try to talk him out of running for the Senate, Mm -hmm. or she had said, no, don't run for president, I don't think he would have done it. And so I think it was an indication of the kind of partnership that they were about to form where they made decisions together. They listened to one another. They both got me to open up. He got me talking about Iran, which I already told you, I never did. But he said, like, where are you from? I said, Chicago. He said, did you grow up here? Yep, sure did. Were you born here? Well, no, I wasn't born here. He said, well, where were you born? And I said, long story, but I was born in Shiraz, Iran. And he leaned in and he said, tell me why. And he was curious and he was interested and and he wasn't making any judgments about it. And then he started telling me about his childhood in Indonesia. And we started comparing notes and we had very similar experiences in these countries so far away, and so different than our own, that it gave us an appreciation for the United States. It taught us that we could walk in a room and find something in common with anybody in the room. Because we were used to being with people who had very different backgrounds than our own. And we also talked about how we believe that the United States is a great country, already a great country, has been a great country. Um, sorry, couldn't resist. Couldn't
2: resist. I'm happy to segue.
1: Just, no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but also, even though we are great, we are not the only country on earth, and that we could actually learn a great deal outside of our shores.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Today's guest, Valerie Jarrett, oversaw the offices of public engagement and intergovernmental affairs under President Obama. She also chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls. She worked closely with Michelle Obama, who's also featured in Aspen Ideas To Go. In an episode about play, Obama talks about how low-income kids are being priced out of sports.
1: This affects all of us, play and nutrition. An overall investment in our kids, whether they can read and think and engage, it's
0: just not enough for us to be okay with so many kids not having that at an excellent level. Find the episode, First Lady Michelle Obama on making sports accessible and affordable on iTunes, Spotify, NPR One, and your favorite podcast app. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Jonathan Capehart
2: so we go from that dinner where you're about to hire Michelle Robinson to eight incredible. We'll skip the Senate. Too. Well,
1: let's just mention she did come and work with me. So well, the yeah, dinner no, that, worked that, that, out okay. Right?
2: No, it all, right, all it just all want worked to make out. That, yeah. Um, and you, the three of you, end up. You describe yourself as, what, like a big sister or a cousin?
1: I used to be an older sister, but, oh. you know, with all that gray hair he has now, I think we're just siblings. <laughs> I don't want to be the older sister
2: anymore. And so what ends up happening is there, there is this, this friendship, this deeply rooted friendship yes. that lasted through, that's still ongoing. But in terms of the, of the White House, you're the longest serving senior advisor to the president probably Ever. Ever. Right? Emma. In history.
1: How crazy is that? That's like a Guinness Book of World Records. I don't know why anybody would leave one moment short of eight years.
2: Well, I remember one of the first interviews I had with you in your office, not occupied by Kellyanne Conway, um, <laughs> where you, where I asked you... Whether it was you, my
1: idea that he do this interview. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, but you said then, you know, you, you serve at the pleasure of the president, and if that means... Being the, there to click the lights off at the end of hopefully eight years, that's what you would do. And if you follow Valerie on Instagram, you saw there is that picture of you clicking the lights off. Is,
1: After the Obamas had already left for the inauguration, I'm still hanging around. <laughs> Secret <laughs> Service is finally, ma'am, you got to go. You just got to go. <laughs>
2: And so, well, one of the big things of of many things from the eight years of the Obama years, and this is going to be my segue, is the you write about the birther controversy, and the that was pushed by then private citizen Donald Trump. Um, Michelle Obama writes about it in in her book. You write about it in your in yours. How damaging was that to? Um, Not to the administration, but to the president and his family and you.
1: Well, it was, it was, it put him and them in harm's way. It was very damaging. It was very irresponsible. It was hypocritical. It was known to be untrue. And you had to question, well, what was the motivation? And the motivation was clearly to delegitimize his candidacy and then his presidency. And as a result of it, it, I mean, it, There are very few things that get me really angry. Um, Well, maybe that's not true. Lately, there are more and more. There didn't used to be a lot that would get me angry, but I thought, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do something that is intended to incite hatred and anger when you know that this is somebody who has a spouse and a family and children and people who love him and, and he's another human being? Why would you feel the need to do that to another person? And I think now that seems kind of quaint and naive, right? But why? What was the point of that, other than to try to to hurt him?
2: So, of all the things that um, he's done, he being the, the current the current president, that's made made you angry. Is there one in particular? One that per minute. <laughs> that that has made you the mo the most angry,
1: Jonathan. Look. Um, uh, and I am rarely speechless, but where where do we begin? It's just hard to say. I mean, I suppose right now I am apoplectic about what we've been seeing happening with these children on the border and how they're being treated and the, the callousness to go into court and basically justify the behavior, the thought that they are being treated in ways that we wouldn't treat animals and that somehow because they're here seeking a better life, that, that that's okay, that they're being used as a, a pawn in some sort of uh, checkers game? I don't understand. I, I find unconscionable. I'm worried to death that by pulling out of the, Ron, the Iran deal that President Obama negotiated together with Great Britain and Germany and France and the UK and Russia and China, this was not just the United States alone. We formed a consortium of all the other major world powers to put pressure on Iran not to develop nuclear weapons, and thinking that that solution was the one that keeps the world the safest, us the safest. And by pulling out on that, now we see that we're in this crazy kind of game of chicken where 10 minutes before striking Iran, fortunately, the president thinks better of it once he finds out that 150 people, lives could be destroyed. How do you not know about that before you order the strike?
2: Well, I was about to ask you, you've been in... uh, uh, in the white house in a senior position did you believe that that he didn't know that before well, it's do you believe deeply troubling
1: if it's true i have no idea if it's true because how do we know what is but it's deeply troubling and in fact susan rice susan rice wrote a, an interesting op-ed that's in the new york times for tomorrow kind of describing this whole situation and the path forward and said look it's a good opportunity to restart and have diplomatic conversations and let's see if we can keep ourselves from the edge of a war that isn't good for anybody. Um, So yeah, on any given day. But I think also, I'm glad my daughter's grown because I think that there are some reasonable expectations of what we hope for a president in terms of the tone he sets or she sets from the top, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm worried about that, thank you. I'm worried about that right now and the message it's sending not only all of our citizens about what's acceptable behavior, because part of our society and the democracy relies not just on the laws, which are really important, and we tried hard to make sure those laws were um, supporting people's civil rights, but it also depends on social norms. And when you start to eat away at the fabric of those social norms, we're sending a message way beyond our shores. And, And part of what we try to do here as this beacon of hope for democracy is to set the tone by example. And if we're not uh, adhering to those very important principles of a democracy, then what are, how are we going to be able to say to other countries, you should follow our lead? And then where do we all end up? Mm-hmm. So the tone from the top troubles me desperately as well.
2: So then should he be, the other conversation is, leave aside tone, ignoring subpoenas, Telling former staffers not to testify before Congress, not handing over the tax returns after a legal order from a congressional committee. There are plenty of reasons out there. Oh, I don't know, 10 documented episodes of obstruction of justice in the part two of the Mueller report. All that to ask, in the whole conversation that's happening in the country about whether President Trump should be impeached, where are you?
1: Well you know, listening to that list is quite painful, really. And um, because we do, the rule of law is the basic tenet of democracy, right? And so if you're not adhering to that, then we haven't even gotten to the social norms yet. Um, So on impeachment, I really do put my um, trust in Speaker Pelosi. Nobody knows her caucus better. Nobody has a feel for politics better. Nobody appreciates the art of the possible better. And believe me, I learned that having had the privilege of working with her uh, when she was the speaker before and we were able to pass the Affordable Care Act, which would not have happened without her support and which I think will be transformational for our country, is and, ha- and will always be transformational for our country. I don't think they'll repeal it. And The reason why I don't think they'll repeal it is because you won't let them, right? You will not, I will think you will not let them. Um, so if she says it's not time, then I say it's not time. And so rather than second-guessing her decision, what I'm trying to figure out is what can I do to improve my kind of mental health at this moment in time? And I think the best thing I can do is to encourage people to get civically engaged and to vote and to care about who's running for office and and, and what. You know, I talk about it in my book going through the stages of grief after the last election, and that I think I described it as kind of um, soul, rent, gut-wrenching. And I sometimes went through all those stages in the same day, they just, anger and denial kept coming back around, back around. And I think out of that I thought, well, what, what do we do? And, and what troubled me most, because I couldn't figure out what happened exactly, but I do know that 43% of eligible voters did not vote. And when that happens, it's not a democracy. And so Mrs. Obama last summer and I started an organization called When We All Vote. And it's nonpartisan, and we intentionally decided to do it nonpartisan, not because we aren't strong Democrats, but because there's something going on in our culture that is um, allowing people to feel disengaged and shunning institutions rather than thinking that they are empowered to go in there and improve institutions. And because our democracy rests on a whole range of institutions, and uh, without government, we don't have a democracy, I say if you don't like the people who are representing you, change them. And I'm gonna start with changing this one. Mm
2: -hmm. And so we've got 24 to choose from.
1: I I think it's 25 now. Wait, didn't somebody else announce today? Who who announced today? Somebody announced today. Some Some guy. Some guy. (laughs) We'll know who he is soon (laughs) enough. Okay. But yes, somebody else announced today. All right.
2: So so now there are 25 people. um, An embarrassment of riches, don't you think? Yes, an embarrassment of riches. So among them, anyone (laughs) catching your fancy? A lot of them are
1: catching my fancy. But you know what? I'm. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to answer your question. I know. I mean, I got to ask. Well, so this is the thing. So I have spoken with several of them, and I, and I give them all my advice because my view is this. Uh, whoever emerges as a nominee for the Democratic Party, I am going to get behind and work 1,000% because they're all better than what we have now. Every one of them, even the guy I don't know.
2: He's better.
1: <laughs> even he's better. So, so that's kind of my attitude. And I say the same thing to all of them. I say, look, Be authentic. Don't be a fake. The American people can snuff out a fake, which means you have to know why you're doing this. You have to realize that it is a marathon, the campaign is, uh, and you've got to get out there every single day and earn the trust and confidence of the American people. And that's as it should be because you are their servant. And so you have to prove to them that you are worthy, not just with a vision, but how you're going to execute that vision, particularly in this climate that is so toxic. What are you going to do to bring us back together again and make us feel as though you know, we have more in common than we have differences? And that's between social media and the tone from the top right now, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, and I also say to them, and this is, I think, perhaps, and I said this a few weeks ago, not because of current events, don't beat up on the other guy or gal for two reasons. Number one, I can figure out about them. I don't need you to tell me about them in the Democratic Party. Um, But also, if you do that, then don't we go into the general election with whoever is the nominee in a weakened position. And we can't afford to be in a weakened position. We have to be in a strong position after the general elect, after the primary.
2: So you've had candidates talk to you. Is, was one of them Vice President Joe Biden?
1: We're not going to get into the individual names, but <laughs> you can assume that I've talked to several of them.
2: Um, Okay, fine. So. But let me ask.
1: Well, the reason why is, first of all, I want them to be able to come to me and talk to me without wondering whether or not I'm going to tell Jonathan Capehart everything I said to
2: <laughs> and to whom, right? Okay. Otherwise, they won't call. And well, I like
1: that they call. Well,
2: I'll, I'll come at it this way. Because contra- he's a really good reporter. So, the vice president is in. Just a
1: segue into talking about Vice President Biden.
2: Well, I'm getting there. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, he's now in, a, in, a, in another controversy. This time, talking about. Uh, past segregationist senator he worked with um, which you know okay I can understand why you're bringing that up but what rankled me is the fact that he said that this senator never called him boy always called him son I don't I know don't, why call, he said that uh, call me crazy but that's <laughs> I, I don't know why he said the that. whole thing that's the most problematic thing in that Well,
1: as you know I have worked with people with whom I strongly disagree on a whole host of issues yeah
2: for eight years
1: for, for eight years, I worked with a whole lot of people I didn't agree on. So maybe he didn't choose the right right um, example. Who knows? But I think what we have to do is realize, look, don't let one thing make you decide, okay, I can't support you for president. Because nobody is perfect, right? We all have baggage. We all have – and they're all perfectly legitimate. Everybody should be talking about whatever they want to talk about. As I say, they should all be prepared to lift up their hood, kick their tires, figure out whether or not this is a person that you can trust. And everybody has to kind of make their own judgment on what those issues might be, right? But as I said, there's nobody in this field so far, including the guy we don't know, who I don't think would be better (laughs) than what we have. And so you can't, and this is not, I'm not talking about Vice President Biden in this context, although he did use, a he had a pretty good quote um, that he used to say all the time when he was campaigning for other people, he said, look, Don't compare them to the Almighty, compare them to the alternative. And I think there's something, there is something to that, right?
2: Yeah, especially for 2020. Um, In the, in the Did you
1: just like, what what are you saying?
2: Oh, because of the stakes uh, Yeah, because of the stakes now. No, it's for real. It's for real. Like, really real. It's for real.
1: Not even for real. Faux
2: real. Faux real. Faux real. (laughs) It's
1: intense. All right. We're laughing, but this is no laughing matter.
2: I mean, I'm really, this is serious. Um, in the little bit of time that we have left, I want to uh, bring you back to the book. Um, you were writing about um, like trying to juggle everything, being oh a, a working mother. And I failed to note the page number here, so my apologies. But um, you talked about the fact that you, at that time, women were all about, in the, work, in the workplace, all about showing how you're just like the guys. Like, nothing else was different, you're just, you're just like the guys. Mistake. And you write about your silence and not saying anything. My silence stemmed mostly from my shame and feeling alone, as though I were the only overwhelmed working mother. I told myself that if I was just smarter, more organized, and more efficient, if I just tried harder and slept less, perhaps it all wouldn't be so hard. As women of my generation fought to gain equity in the workplace, we made an unspoken pact to pretend, even to one another, that we had it all under control, we didn't. We couldn't possibly. What is the hope? I mean, here's a smattering of like golf applause, but working mothers. But um, what what do you say to or what did you say to Laura? What do you say to Laura's friends? The this this next generation of young women, women who are trying to juggle it all. Are they more aware and more open? to no longer being silenced, or has that been carried over generation,
1: generation Have you worked with any millennials? Oh, yeah, they're not so quiet about this stuff, <laughs> which is good. I mean, I think, I mean, I I obviously have a great relationship with my daughter, and I've always talked to her very openly, and I, and I told her the mistakes I made of trying to, you know, it's like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, you're dancing backwards with high heels on, and I thought that, it was important to prove my worthiness by pretending there was no life outside. And I thought that if I didn't do that, then the guys wouldn't take me as seriously. And when I started verbalizing what was going on in my life and I was in an environment where people actually cared, they responded to my needs. I mean, I had a great mentor who supported me in crazy ways. She'd come to my home after work so I could put Laura to bed and then we would work after Laura went to sleep well, you know, most people aren't gonna do that for you, but if I had never told her I was a single mom and I needed to get home for bedtime, then how would she have ever known? And so I am encouraged that this next generation is a little bit more um, willing to, first of all, to expect more from their, their partners, their spouses, in terms of contributing. I know my daughter and her husband have had many a conversation about their joint expectations in parenting. Uh, we just gave them a baby shower yesterday, and it was co-ed. And people were like, well, why are the guys coming to the shower? And I said, from the beginning, they're starting this as a partnership. And they're doing this together. You laugh. You try a covered shower. It was fun. No games. We didn't play games. <laughs> um, part of my message is, look, uh, the question is, can you have it all? Well, we set an unreal expect- unreal expect- unrealistic expectation that having it all means doing everything to perfection. And I thought I was superhuman. And I could do it all, I could work all day, I could come home, I could put Laura to bed, I could work some more, and then I would make baby food from scratch in the middle of the night. What was I thinking? Don't do that to yourself. Don't set yourself up to think that everything has to be absolutely perfect. And I think the best example of that would be Laura. When I started my book tour, Laura flew out to Chicago and was interviewed with me and the person who was moderating the conversation asked Laura what surprised you in the book about your mother and my daughter said I had no idea she felt so guilty Mm. she said she was a perfect mom from her vantage point not from mine from mine I was a lousy mother and I and I was lousy at everything when she was really young and that's not how she saw the world and so I think I want working parents to give themselves a little bit of a break to realize that you are doing a great job and don't let perfection be the definition, the almighty comparison exactly, but also to remember that life has multiple chapters and they each have trade-offs and you make decisions and then you have to live with the consequences of those decisions. But for me, what I realized when I started listening to my voice and I started realizing how much power I could have if I spoke up, and I started making decisions where I listened to the gut inside of me as opposed to what everybody else was defining as my life, that's when the adventure began. Not craving the comfort of the straight line that I had charted out for myself, but the exhilaration that comes from taking advantage of opportunities that knock at inopportune moments. And the exhilaration that comes from being scared to death about trying something new and then figuring out, oh, I can do that and conquering it and then swerving again. So zigzag is kind of my message to the young folks.
2: Your your word is embrace the zag. I think in uh, Michelle Obama's book, it's embrace the swerve.
1: All of the above, Um, all of the above. Because if, if Michelle Obama and I both had not swerved out of what was expected of us into public service, who knows where we would all be today, right?
2: Right, you might be mayor of Chicago. You decided not to to run for mayor of Chicago because you didn't want to be in elective office. You just but didn't want a Your wanna... face.
1: You <laughs> know what? I'm just to... I thought about it long and hard. At one point in my life, I thought about throwing my hat in the ring to to replace President Obama when he was first elected in the Senate. And I think in the end, I I have come to appreciate that there are many ways to serve and you have to do a gut check before you do elected office. And just as I described my early days in city government, where it's 24-7 and people come up to you in the grocery store and the dry cleaners and lobby your daughter, all of that is what you have to be prepared for when you run for office. And at this stage of my life, don't hate me, but I wake up every single day and I do exactly what I want to do. Right? I mean, I worked really hard to get to this point, and And I work, I think, as hard as ever, but on issues I care about, and I define them. I set the time, I set the place, I determine the agenda, and I also really am looking forward to being a grandmother and I don't want to be um a public official when I'm trying to be a grandma. That's just me. everybody has to make their own decisions mm-hmm.
2: so we started this conversation by talking about sort of the <laughs> mantra of yes. your 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 parents about you know your willingness to work hard and be resilient and, and have a little luck. And you can only take advantage of luck if you are fully prepared. And it's right after President Obama has been elected. Um, on election night, there's a 60 Minutes interview. You're sitting with your parents, watching this. And um, I'm going to read what, what, what you wrote. At the end of the interview, my mother looked over at me. How did you know that he could win, she asked. Not that he would, but even that he could. Because of you two, I said, a bit, of, a bit of surprise in my voice. Because you both raised me to believe that if you work twice as hard as anyone else and sacrifice for what you believe in and luck is on your side, the sky's the limit. She shook her head and said softly, I never believed any of that. <laughs> and the kicker? My dad chuckled and said he agreed with her. Valerie- no, but read the rest. Wait. Read the
1: rest. The best party left our the rest. Oh, well, that, read for me, rest. that
2: was- Oh, I'm sorry. I stared at them in disbelief for the first time. I realized my parents had raised me aspirationally, instilling in me a set of core beliefs that they didn't actually hold themselves. That <laughs> here's the best line, and I did underline this. Their gift to me was not to shackle me with their reality, but to prepare me to own the full potential of mine. And that is the best way to end this conversation with Valerie Jarrett, author of Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. Thank Valerie you, Jarrett, thank, thank you. you.
0: Valerie Jarrett is a senior advisor to the Obama Foundation. She's a distinguished fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. Her memoir is Finding My Voice, Jonathan Capehart is an opinion writer for the Washington Post and a member of its editorial board. He hosts the Cape Up podcast and is an MSNBC contributor. Their conversation was held in late June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keelene Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.